Welcome to Tuesdays with Andrea. It's the inspiration station for everyday people guiding humanity forward. I'm your host, Andrea Rios McMillan, and every week I pursue conversations that matter with people who can relate to the common struggles we all face. You'll get to know the person behind the profession and find commonality with people of all ages, cultures, and backgrounds. Listen as friends, neighbors, and coworkers offer meaningful, personal explorations of modern life and the values we hold dear, all for the purpose of strengthening and uplifting others. Welcome to Tuesdays with the Andrea Podcast. I'm your host, Andrea Rios McMillan, and today we have Michael Miglacio, aka Iggs. No, Migs. And Migs, you work as a tech trainer at Target, and uh, you introduce tech to teams at all levels. So I'm excited to talk to you because my background is also in tech, uh, but not at your level. Um, But I'm excited to hear more about your story. So welcome to the show. Uh, Thank you so much for having me. So tell me, how how did you get where you are? Tell me about your job at Target. Um, provide some background about yourself to us. Sure. I'm what's called a, a lead software engineering coach. And so we have a whole team of coaches that's based out in Target's immersive learning environment, uh, basically a dojo, where teams all over the company can come and basically learn from us, both in terms of technology as well as you know business process and things like that. When people ask me in terms of me, what, what I do for a living, and I'm here at, for me, like, basically, I, I did want to clarify that, like, I'm not speaking on behalf of Target or anything like that. I'm cleared to talk here, but I just want to make sure, you know, that that's yeah. clear. Um, got to make anyway. sure you're good. At, you got to make yeah. sure you're good with the job. <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. Job's good so, with it. <laughs> yep. Yep. Job's good with it. So uh, what I do is basically demystify technology and business process for teams of all level, basically making technology less scary so that folks can come in and approach it with a curious mind as opposed to being afraid. Like you think of, you know, when you're a kid and you're sleeping at night and there's like a shadow on the wall and it looks like a big creepy monster. And if you shine a light on it, then all of a sudden you find out it's a mouse or something else. Uh, That's my job. I direct that light and make sure that folks can, you know, understand technology, but also approach it with, with a more curious mindset as well. Is this your full day-to-day job at Target? It is. It is. And so no day is the same. Some days I'll be meeting with individual people and go over different technologies like Somebody might be like, okay, my team's going to be using Java now. So how do I get started learning that? Or um, more recently, I've been giving like entire seminars of a hundred or more people just going through Target's technology processes. So basically creating special trainings that can be given either in person or remote, which has been another set of challenges that I can speak to. So it's a combination of an instructor, a counselor, and a leadership whisper as well. And how do you like it? I love it. You asked me for my background a little bit earlier. My background is in engineering. I started my career at IBM uh, many, many years ago. Graduated with a computer science degree, Japanese language minor. So Japanese language? Yes. Okay. We'll talk more about that. So after I graduated, I moved out basically into the middle of Minnesota, worked for IBM, I got the offer from Rochester. I thought I was actually moving to New York. It turns out that there is a Rochester, Minnesota, and that's where I ended up. I met my now wife there uh, as an intern and uh, started as an engineer, moved up the ranks through that, switched to different companies, uh, ended up being a senior engineer and then a lead engineer. And then when I finally moved over to Target, it was totally different. But coming from like some of my hobbies and things outside of work, it felt like kind of a natural fit for me to, to harness the tech, but also... The, the coaching method and, and like helping other teams understand it. 
Now, were you a natural trainer? Because training isn't easy. You have to understand the technology, you have to have a good grasp on that. And then you have to be able to explain it and then translate it to people yeah. who aren't familiar or don't have that same background. Absolutely. So, so you use the term bridge, which is actually very, very accurate in that way. But for me, technology didn't come naturally, actually. My first exposure to programming was actually 16 years old. I got picked for a, a game programming workshop out in Seattle that was held basically right outside of Nintendo. And I really wanted to do it. I had grown up with games. My whole fascination with Japanese came from the fact that all of these games that I grew up with were made by Sega. creators in Japan. <laughs> and my mom created a monster when at you know eight years old, she basically handed me a game magazine subscription to teach me how to read and I devoured it. And I became amazed that all of these worlds that I was, you know, spending so much time in were coming from this place that I knew nothing about. So over time that played into it. So like diving into languages and writing and reading and those kinds of skills came much more natural to me than tech did. When I showed up at this workshop, I didn't understand a thing like, you know, variables, loops, all of these tech terms were going in and out of my head. I, I walked out of that workshop for the first day completely frazzled. And my parents were staying with me. Fortunately, we have relatives in Seattle. So we were actually able to go and stay with them for free and all of that, which was awesome. But I basically dragged my mom to the mall and bought the C for dummies that basically goes into the, the programming basics because I, I literally could not understand how anything worked. And it was a journey uphill from that. Like, I mean, I eventually figured it out. Over time, I got better and better and began to derive excitement from solving these problems. So long story short, tech didn't come easy. So I found a lot of uh, fulfillment in other areas. Like I mentioned before, the writing, the reading, um, the languages. I did a lot of theater. My good friend, Mike Lechieris, can, can tell you all about our, our shenanigans um, way back in the day in theater. Were you uh, part of that of German... The philosopher video that he was talking about in his oh, podcast. Oh, <laughs> yes. Oh, yes. 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 Faustus uh, was was quite the uh, interesting time. You know, um, that takes a lot of courage for you to be able to like, are, you, are we talking acting when you talk about theater? Acting and directing. And get on stage. And, yep. I, I've done everything <laughs> um, in terms of community theater. And at first being afraid to, like, I used to be afraid of getting up in front of people as me, but if I was a character, it was fine. It's interesting. Yeah, yeah, all of those, all of those things kind of played into it. So all of these different skills, right? Over time, I began to get very frustrated in my career as a developer, because basically I was just sitting there crunching out code and I was decent enough at it. You know, as, as a developer, I was getting decent performance reviews and all of that. That wasn't really a problem, but I wasn't really fulfilled. It, it was hard to to find mentorship opportunities, and it, I, I just didn't want to become the guy for a particular service or a particular place. And mm -hmm. one thing led to another. I was pointed at this coaching opportunity at Target, and all of these different backgrounds that I have make it easy for me to relate technology to people in different ways. So you mentioned your interest in getting into technology or computer science was gaming. What made you stick with it? What Did you have an end goal? What got you to stick with it when it got hard to where you knew you wanted to continue that pathway? It was the childhood dream, which at the time was wanting to go to Japan and work with those amazing creators. Mm -hmm. and, and that's really what drove me all the way through. Of course, once getting out and starting a career and learning things beyond that, 
then it just became sort of a, a feedback loop of now I've got these other things going on. I have my theater, I have my conversation class in Japanese and, and I can get fulfilled in other ways. This actually comes to an interesting topic that I want to talk to you about. Have you heard of the term ikigai by any chance? No, but is that the old place that you used to work at? No, no the gaming? No. Because I saw on your LinkedIn profile that you no. did work at Entropy game. Games. That's actually, Entropy. That's, okay. that's a place that my wife and I co-founded. It's nothing special. <laughs> what? Yeah, that's awesome. That is stuff. special. You and your wife co-founded <laughs> and it, that is special. <laughs> what happened there? Is it still um, going on? It, it is, but it's kind of on hiatus right now. We have the most amazing three-year-old that is taking up a lot of our time outside of work. So Understood. Um, but that still, being said. So, <laughs> <laughs> that um, you created it, for sure. Yeah. yeah. But, but we'll go on with the phrase. Yeah. So Ikigai is a Japanese concept. It's one of the three reasons why the Okinawans live to be over 100 years old. And Okinawans and, are Japanese? Yeah. So Japan's the banana right? It's kind of banana shaped. It's got four main islands. Off of the bottom part of the last or the southernmost island, there's a, a very small archipelago down there that is also owned by Japan that, that is basically the Hawaii of Japan. Very similar climate to Hawaii. People go there on vacation, what have you. Uh, the people there are super chill, just like Hawaiians are apparently super chill. Um, I haven't met many Hawaiians, but the people that I have known from Hawaii have been super chill. Super chill, uh, super cool. <laughs> yeah. uh, so they are the longest living group of folks in the world. And they really focus on this concept of ikigai, which is, it, uh, let's hope that this works. Okay, life. So, so yeah, so iki means life or living and kai is like effect or result. So this idea is that in order to find fulfillment, you kind of have to have the intersection of a few different pieces. So money, so, heart, light, and world, is that what those four are? Yes. Heart, money, world, world, light bulb. Light bulb. So I love the diagram. So what that means is something you love, something that can pay you, something that the world needs, and something that you're good at. If you can find the intersection between those four things, you'll be fulfilled in your career and therefore in your life. That's your ikigai? Yes. Okay. That's the concept. Nice. Um, so what was so, yours? How, do, how did you blend those four together? I, I haven't found the perfect solution yet. I'm very, very close. I was very much hanging out in the, the PAVE category for a long time. I love technology, but I wanted to do more with people. And the world honestly doesn't need more applications. It really doesn't. People need to understand people before they start writing applications. We need our technologists to understand people better before they start building things. Because otherwise we have uh, different effects. What and, do you think the world needs more of right now? Um, more of the kinds of things that you're doing, honestly. Um, more of the kinds of, of beginning to understand each other and learn from each other. Um, we also need to understand what facts are which can be tricky when people live in different realities. And those, yeah. those realities are driven by algorithms, which is what I was talking about before. You kind of have to think before you build things because you can sort of lose control of those things. And those things don't have emotions. They operate on what it is that you design them to do, which in a lot of cases is the engage, like basically draw eyeballs. And strong emotions draw eyeballs and strong emotions also provide um, a lot of negative effects as well. It's kind of like the John Hammond 
Jurassic Park thing. Just because you can, uh, it doesn't mean you necessarily should, or you can easily lose control. And people are beginning to realize that with technology. How has COVID impacted your work and what pivots have you had to make? So first of all, Target is awesome. And the fact that um, my wife, who is also uh, an engineer at Target, the fact that we both can work and also keep our little one home. Usually it goes to daycare, but because we've had cases in the area and other things like that, we've actually kept him home for a few weeks now. So it's been it's been a little challenging, but it's also amazing to be able to spend the time with him. That being said, it does require a little bit of coordination, a few challenges around just making sure he's taken care of and, and entertained and, and is learning. Do you work from home? Yes. So okay. that was the other piece. So she used to be based in downtown Minneapolis. I used to be based in a, a different campus, but I would often travel between campuses. We have three different, basically, campuses in the Minneapolis area. And if somebody needed to learn something, I would basically go there. Or if there was a training that needed to happen and be scheduled at a particular campus, that's where I would be. Now, everything has gone online, which has introduced some interesting challenges. So how do you keep somebody engaged in a training when... Literally, research has shown that they will disengage after seven minutes. Mm -hmm. The answer is actually uh, breakout rooms and pulse using Zoom. Mm -hmm. But that also requires a lot of coordination and building out more or less activities and things and these learnings so people can go to a breakout and do a worksheet together and come back. And it, it basically changes the whole format of what a training looks like. And I've spent some time actually presenting both to folks at Target as well as at conferences outside in both English and Japanese about how to do this. So that's been very cool. And, and, and being on kind of the cutting edge of this, folks don't necessarily like some of the stuff that seems common sense to us because we learned it kind of early on. Uh, mm -hmm. People are kind of surprised to learn. What are some of those things that uh, are most receptive from your audiences? One was the, the seven minute rule. Sounds about yes. right. <laughs> yeah. So it's good to check out in, in between seven and 10 minutes if you don't actively engage them. The other one is camera stuff, which is very interesting because you run into cases all the time where you get some really weird stuff with the camera. So say, for example, I log on and I more or less log on like this. How difficult is that to like start a conversation and engage with me if I was doing this the whole time versus where my camera was before? It's yeah, a different yeah. feeling, right? Yeah. And if the CEO is doing that, it makes it look like, you know, you're looking down on somebody. So the same thing is true of other cases where, you know, if you're, you're going too far in, you can make a point, but that also is actually very, very uncomfortable for certain cultures. Yeah, like, it is. <laughs> like, cool. You don't want to do that. Uh, but if you want to make a strong point, for example, if you use your hands, notice that the hands grow uh, exponentially as you move them closer to the screen. And you can make points that way and emphasize without having to basically stare into your attendee's soul. And that that helps too. So little tips and tricks like, and uh, a lot of these tricks, people don't really pay much attention to until they realize somebody is not doing it. Usually it doesn't make much of a difference until somebody logs on and you're looking at their chin. So, you know, keeping these things in mind, it's a lot more than just lighting. There's a lot in terms of how you communicate and and, and the manner in which, which you pre present yourself in a, in a digital space that, that can make a lot of difference in terms of how effective you are as a communicator. Interesting. And has your work been more in demand since COVID? Uh, I, I would think so because people are different now- Different work. Yeah, different work. Okay. Different work. 
um, before COVID, we'd, we'd meet with a lot of teams who are having, you know, just our team split up into two, right? We have the technical coaching and we have the business process coaching. And mm. usually we have one from each team work together. Um, but um, most of the time, it's not a technology problem. It's a person problem. And the sooner that we can <laughs> uncover that. Okay. I, I should clarify. It's a relational problem. I shouldn't say it's a person problem because it's not necessarily somebody being deliberately antagonistic, but it's more um, the way that the team is working or the way that the team is relating to each other is That's impacting the work. That's a great point work. that you just made. That is yeah. such a great point. Um, attitude. What are some of those common things that people can be aware of in terms of relational communication, especially in the workplace? Um, and for engineers, it's especially hard because engineers have to deal with a lot more problems than than what necessarily like people on the business side or the, or the product owner might even be aware of. Uh, let's start with a fake deadline. So this is a concept where basically somebody on the business side, fairly high up, will come down and they'll say, hey, this feature on target.com that you're working on, uh, yeah, that's going to go out on Tuesday. This person is high up, has no indication of where the team is at, whether they're even working on the feature, where they are in the feature, how, how likely is it that it's going to go to Tuesday? And if it does go on Tuesday, how will that interact with other things that are currently out there on the website, especially like during, I don't know, holiday time, for example. <laughs> and this causes a downward stream of flurry of activity as the product owner takes that, runs with it kind of cracks the whip and causes the engineering team to spring into action. They get it done on time, but they don't have enough bandwidth to take care of issues with other teams, communicating the change. They don't have time to test it. They don't have time to verify that it's working properly across all kinds of situations because software is complicated. E-commerce software is even more complicated. So the complexity of it causes a lot of headache for engineers and basically demotivates that. So getting in there and actually being able to communicate with them and saying like, okay, what was so special about Tuesday, you know, and talking through yeah. that and being like, and basically pushing upstream and being like, you know, is Tuesday really a thing? And if it is a thing, what can we mitigate and unblock the team from being able to actually focus on getting that out the door as opposed to just racing for an arbitrary reason? That's right. one example. There's a whole bunch of different challenges that engineers face that are more kind of people process problems than they are tech, but they always manifest as I want to learn a new tech or my tech's broken. And it ends up being much more of a relational issue. Got it. So let's dive into your personal story a little bit. Now that we've had a good overview of your technical and professional background, uh, what life experiences have shaped you the most? So I, I mentioned before the connection with Japan, which again, started very, very young. I was bullied as a young kid. So I found comfort in, in video games and kind of this escape realm a little bit. And that plus the combination of getting access to these awesome magazines where they interview these creators and these fantastical worlds that caused a, a sort of a lifelong um, connection to that place. I actually didn't get a chance to visit Japan until much after like five years or so after graduating college, I never mm -hmm. got a chance to study abroad or do any traveling in my early, uh, just, I didn't have any money. I didn't have any time due to financial things. I, I had to graduate my university in eight semesters. So I literally had no runway for any mistakes. I literally had to go yeah. all the way through. And that first trip was actually with my uncle who had a business trip and I had studied the language for four years in college. And so never having been there, and um, that first trip was a, a life-changing event for me because that's where the switch flipped from 
this has been about games and kind of the fascination with the world to this is a fascinating place with fascinating people that are like you, I began to understand more about myself and my own personality, my own existence from visiting a place that was so different and just walking around, taking in the scenes from the Imperial Palace Garden and Electric Town that was at Akihabara where most of the real life locations in video games in Japan are based off of. Like all of that, in recent years, we've hosted students through an exchange program. I've been the vice president of the sister city organization around here and have done interpretation for them. And, and just all of these little connections have really added to that uh, extra what the world needs, sort of that bridge aspect of things that doesn't necessarily manifest in the day to day so much. And yes. that's been that's been a big uh, influence on me, I would say one of the big influences on me. What did you learn about yourself from that? Honestly, it's it's really kind of a it, it's really stereotypical in a way. So I feel almost bad saying it. But growing up, okay, so working class family, uh, suburbs of Chicago, Oak Lawn was where I grew up very early on. Um, parents were both educators. Well, both went to college for education. My mom became a elementary school teacher, but once I was born, she took off to to raise me until I got a little bit older, and eventually my sister as well. My dad never actually got into education. He ended up finding his footing and an amazing career in uh, steel, like a, a steel company he became an executive there. But we got bumped around to different places uh, because of that um, went from uh, Oak Lawn to Lockport and then from Lockport to Huntsville, Alabama, which was a bit of a culture shock. And then from Huntsville, Alabama, back to Naperville, Illinois. So basically from Oak Lawn to Save by the Bell over a span of like, I don't know, <laughs> 10 years or something like moving around and kind of getting exposed to different types of people. And especially in, in Naperville where the judging capacity that the, um, the people tend to have very, very, I'm trying to be politically correct here. Feelings are, are strong there in terms of appearances. And mm -hmm. I hadn't been anywhere where that was the case before. So that really hit me hard. And it, it sort of, uh, drove me for a bit of a loop. And I, and I spent a lot of my um, formative years there, at least in, in terms of high school and then a little bit of college, really worried about what everybody else thought and everybody else was concerned with and how I was being um, viewed or seen or behaving. It was probably that first trip to Japan where they are a very group-oriented society as opposed to an individual-oriented society. And a lot of their culture and their mindset, it's its around grounding yourself or a little bit of mm -hmm. like the Zen Buddhist culture and things like throwing away what you don't need and focusing sort of inward on what matters. Th that is kind of what I was able to take from that. So in an American perspective, I would say that they're just not all that into you <laughs> is, is what basically <laughs> I would say is the lesson that I learned. Basically, people are wrapped up in their own battles, their own lives. And what I would tell my son as he gets older that nobody had a chance to tell me is that if somebody is really spending that much time and energy on trying to antagonize you or cause trouble for you, that's their problem, not yours. Because honestly, most people are really not that interested in what's going on <laughs> with you. <laughs> they have their own thing. And that trip to Japan was very grounding in that aspect, like to be in this culture where 
despite being a bit of an outsider to understand and see how everybody kind of operates as one unit. And people don't seem to be that focused on those external things. That's being very stereotypical in a way. And I'm not trying to say that. I'm just trying to say that the environment and, and the people and, and the interactions that I had there kicked that little attitude to the curb a little bit. And mm-hmm. I still find myself catching myself doing it from time to time, but it has helped kind of ground myself in that. Like, are, are you really worried that some random person is going to think A or B? Like, is, is that really worth your time? No, mm-hmm. it's not. Think about that. So that's one of the, one of the lessons I would say I took from that. You uh, mentioned your your son. Mm-hmm. And when you think about core values and beliefs that you now hold, what would be some that you want to transmit or relay to him as he grows up? So I would say in terms of core values. Do you have a I, note document? I, <laughs> I, I answered all the all this stuff. So I just want to make sure that I <laughs> you're like core values, page two, <laughs> line three. Um, <laughs> what are they? No, I, I just want to make sure because I have a three pointer. And, and I did want to say, well, first of all, and I mentioned this very, very briefly, attitude over aptitude. Um, they don't have to be like Aiden doesn't have to be the smartest kid in the room. Regardless, I mean, if, if he doesn't take to STEM, we're not going to make him do STEM. He has to learn how to obviously survive on his own and things like that over time and, and learn like how to be a good person, how to be kind to people. But don't worry, the result will come if you have the right attitude. Because even if you necessarily don't hit the ball the first time, and I hate using sports analogies because I don't play sports, but if you don't succeed the first time, you always have a chance to try again. Mm-hmm. And, and it might not be the exact same situation, but you're able to take another shot in some way, shape, or form. So don't fret so much about an individual result. What's great about here that's different from places like Japan or South Korea is that your career trajectory is not dependent on one test given on one day, on one year of your life. You can get derailed by these tests in in ways in other places that you don't have to worry about here. And I'm grateful for that. Uh, Not to say that we don't have those kinds of things, but uh, it's not the end of the world like for your entire career if, if you have a bad day and are sick in sixth grade, which Mm -hmm. that can actually happen in other places. So Mm -hmm. attitude over aptitude is the first one. Have a good attitude. And yes, that can be hard at times. The second is kindness over correctness. So being right is not the most important thing in the world. I told you so does nothing for the person that made the mistake. It's therapy for the person who tried to warn the person who made the mistake. It does nothing for the person who went ahead and did the thing. So empathy, kindness over being right. Don't be right at all costs because you're going to get stung. You're not going to be well-liked and you won't feel better. Like telling other people you were right, even if you were right and they were wrong, doesn't make anybody feel better. It's, you know, it it just doesn't work. Yeah, but it feels so good sometimes. (laughs) I know, I know, I know, I know. Trust me. I, I, I understand completely. Um, But I hear you. (laughs) (laughs) And the third the third is connecting the world. So being outside of uh, basically, we're going to take him on a lot of trips. We're going to go a lot of different places. We're going to go to Japan, but we're not just going to go to Japan. We've talked about online schooling so that we can take him and like, you know, instead of learning about what's in the Louvre, we just go to the Louvre. Like we're planning to be able to have a lot more flexibility in our careers as we get older. So to be able to give him the dimension of it's so important, especially right now, 
with how divided we are and all of that, that people have a world focus. They're not grounded just in their city, state, town, even America mindset. You need to go elsewhere and you have to feel what it's like to be elsewhere because it's a different feeling and it gives you a different set of both respect and also outsider perspective of how we're viewed, how we're seen and how other people do things. Where do you find strength and inspiration? Hmm. I, I would say my family, my son and my wife, for sure. Tech is a tough field. Um, I told you I didn't grow up in having this as an innate skill. This is something that I've had to push and push and push and push. And it's also such a large field. There's a million different things you can learn. And because of social media, everything you see is going to make it look like everybody's the expert except for you. There's a couple of related terminologies for that. One is um, imposter syndrome, which basically implies that even for people who know a lot of things, they feel like that they're going to be found out as as somebody who doesn't know anything at all. And the second one is the Dunning-Kruger effect, which is basically the more that you know about something, the more you realize that you have to learn about that thing. So Mm -hmm. as you gain more knowledge, you find out just how deep the rabbit hole goes and how much further that you have to go. No expert would probably call themselves an expert because of this effect. I'm sure there are exceptions, but generally uh, nobody knows it all. I don't know it all as a coach, but I fight these things. I fight these things constantly. And the fact that my wife is such an amazing person and is my technological equal or superior, and we can have these conversations, although she is actually a stronger person than I am usually, we complement each other very well. She provides that strength for me. How long have you guys been married? Oh gosh, since 2013, but we've been together many years before that. So uh, Mm -hmm. we were best friends before we were married, so. Oh, one of those like... uh... Uh, what are they called? Almost like the the, the fantasy love story. <laughs> <laughs> Both being very logical people, it just became the logical <laughs> next step after a while. It was just, well, we like each other. Well, We've been around. We want to raise a family. Let's just do this thing. Let's do it this It wasn't thing. really bachelor, bachelorette style. Will you accept this rose kind of thing at all? It was and basically it the out. antithesis of it, but yeah. it still worked out. Exactly. <laughs> so what worries you right now? What keeps you up at night? the state of the world, completely the state of the world. And not to get political, because it's really hard, you know, to to get political in these kinds of, in these kinds of talks. And just the fact that we are so divided. And I mean, we just celebrated Christmas with in-laws who have been quarantining, thankfully, and to have them go off on, on just the, the most ridiculous, uh, you know, conspiracy theories, and then having to, you know, talk people down from things. And I just want to get back to a a place where we can respect each other and we can disagree. Like, that's fine. We're not going to have the same opinions for how things should be run. And that's reasonable. That's perfectly fine. But to sit here and go, our life is over or the enemy is coming to get us or, you know, all of these just ridiculous things that social media is propagating that our culture now is propagating is so frightening. I want my son to grow up in a world that doesn't eat itself alive. I guess basically what keeps me up at night is him. Don't you feel like these periods of like fear or of division, it's a pattern. It's cyclical, right? The world has gone through so many world wars already. And and I feel like we still as humans have managed to come together (laughs) and find a way, even after the Spanish flu and people were Mm -hmm. locked down during then too. And technology does change things. 
But part of me thinks that there are some things that will never change, like our propensity to want to connect with like-minded people who have yeah. a vision for creating some more good in the world, right? We're going to find a way. Do you believe <laughs> you that? Go. That's cool. Yeah, I agree. And and that's really what, yeah, what I think keeps me going is just finding those little sparks of difference that I can make either in, in my day-to-day job, in my son's life, in my wife's life, in my family. I, I live for those moments because if, if you don't, you'll just drown in yeah. garbage. It's, it's depressing. I don't want to be depressing on here because this is so, all about the uplifting, <laughs> but... Well, um, <laughs> the real is also good, right? It's real. Yeah. Um, so what is the kindness act that someone's done for you? Oh, gosh, that is a really hard question. I think listening to me, listening to me when I didn't deserve it. And that would be my wife who has done this a, a number of times throughout you know, the uh, many years we've known each other. <laughs> I am a more emotional person. Um, I'm one of the engineers who has um, who has a emotions <laughs> propensity for people, but an ambivert, so things get exhausting uh, quicker. It goes back down to that sort of um, worrying about other people's thoughts and things like that that I picked up, you know, as a young adult, and then into my career. And it's just like, what are you talking about? What are you thinking of? This is stupid. <laughs> Why are you thinking yeah. about that? Basically, I need to be told. She doesn't say I'm stupid, but it's like, that's dumb. Why are you thinking about that? That doesn't make sense. From mm-hmm. a logical perspective, doesn't make sense. It's like, I know it doesn't make sense logically. But hear and, me. And to just be <laughs> able listen. to t- take that step back. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, yeah. And, and that's been one of, I'd say one of the kindest things. I would say listening when desperately needed. And then if you had to think about, and I'll close with this question. Okay. Um, What are you most proud of? Everything that you've done, where you've been, um, how you've handled your, you know, yourself through everything. What are you most proud of when you look back? This is again, stereotypical, but seeing, seeing my son transform from a, you know, little baby into this person this amazing person with thoughts, feelings, opinions, better and for worse. The fact that he is he is growing up and he's learning and he's picking up on, on the things that we're telling him is, is the thing by far I'm most proud of. Um, a very brief note about my son that, that sort of is what brought me on the path to this particular career in this particular place. My son was five weeks early and I almost missed his birth because I had the previous few weeks been been in a uh, meeting, uh, basically a town hall at one of the places I was working. This isn't Target, where basically somebody had seen me on my phone, which I might have been texting. I might have been doing something during a town hall, and it came up during an employee evaluation. So my manager got in trouble because I was on my phone during a meeting. So I got chastised for that. And so like a moron, despite the fact that my wife is seven months pregnant or six months pregnant, whatever it was at the time, I decided from then on, I'm going to leave my phone at my desk for all meetings so nobody can get me in trouble again. Of course, when you have a partner who is who is very pregnant, that is a really stupid thing to do. And what ended up happening five weeks before his due date was I got dragged into a meeting for two hours. She was going to go to a typical, just a, a, a normal check, but it ended up that there was an issue. And they basically needed to, for, for the health of her and for the baby, uh, to, to go. And she kept trying to call and call and call and call. And my phone was just sitting there. Nobody was touching it. 
it, it, it was there. I was in a meeting. By the time I finally got back, it was 10 messages. You need to get here now. I'm like, I, I run downstairs. I get off at the wrong elevator level of where my car is. I hurry there. Everything's fine. I get there in time. But the fact that that experience with that particular place made me react in that. Well, I was wrong to react in that way. But the fact that they made such a big deal out of that is what made me start looking for a change and then led to this place, which is so much more family supportive. And, you know, every day but I wake did up. Did you make it for the birth? Oh, absolutely. Yes. Okay. Yes. <laughs> and when you say, you know, what are you most proud of? I, I can't have any other answer than Aiden. He's, he's an amazing, amazing kid. And every day is something new. It, it seems so stereotypical. Non-parents are going to roll their eyes at this. And I feel bad because I used to like really not get it either. And you're and, like, and I used now, to be that person. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> but, but it's true. It's, it's honestly true. It, it's, you know, you have this little thing that you can hold in your hand and, and, and now he's, you know, three years old and, and running, bouncing off the walls, telling you he loves you and is learning all the things, counting and, and showing preferences to things. He loves video games. So, so we play together. He actually asks me to play video games more than I can actually play them. He runs in when I'm working. Daddy games, daddy games. Daddy games? I, I can't, I can't play games. So <laughs> you're like, no, I, no. Yeah, yeah. Well, yes, I'd love to, but I'm, I'm like in the middle of something here. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, yeah, that's, that's it. That's what I'm most proud of is that amazing kid. Mm, well, thank you, Michael. This was fascinating. And I appreciate you sharing your time with us today. Absolutely. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to Tuesdays with Andrea. There are hundreds of thousands of podcasts out there, and I appreciate you making the time to listen to mine. If you like this show and want to know more, check out TuesdaysWithAndrea.com or please leave a review on iTunes or drop a line in the YouTube comment section. Until next time, please stay kind in your mind, nice on the web, and stay hella hopeful in your heart.